No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Kelsey, for bringing the word and sharing reading it for us. Uh, Good morning, church. My name is Pastor Nathan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown. And it's my joy to continue in the series through the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, a very powerful, powerful uh, section of scripture that Jesus has given to us. And if I'm honest this morning, I'm a bit overwhelmed. Um, My role here at the church is pastor of sending. So I joke that uh, the rest of the pastors are here to encourage you and to like grow you up in the faith and we're one family and my job is to like send you guys away, get you guys out of here. Uh, so on a Sunday like this where we get to like send out some of our best, it is a painful experience, but it is a beautiful experience. And let me say, my wife and I have been here at Sojourn for 10 years and we've seen some really beautiful seasons. We've been a part of some really difficult seasons, but God is doing something unique in our midst. I really believe that. And part of that is he's calling our people to rise up and to take all that they're learning and take it to places that need churches. Uh, One of the things that Pastor Jamal and I got to do last week is we flew to Oakland, California to be able to see some of our sent ones, the Westbrooks, James and Desiree, who are planting a church with other sojourners out there. And uh, we got to love on them, be encouraged by them. It's an amazing place that needs churches. But the other reason why we were there is we got to rub shoulders with churches from all over the country who were seeking to plant churches like we are. And honestly, they're far beyond us. And we were like taking notes and asking questions. Uh, And this is, you could see that a picture that was us kind of learning and growing together. But one of the churches we got to sit alongside and learn from over meals and coffee was a church called Grace Point. And Grace Point has a really powerful story. They started 30 years ago on the campus of UC Berkeley in the Bay Area. And just a really unique church. The, The pastors there had a vision to live out Acts chapter two. We'll get to that in a little bit later, but living Acts chapter two, and their, their vision is to see an Acts two church on every college campus in America. And why they're unique is that they're willing to go to almost any links in the gospel to, to take churches and plant churches on college campuses. So they're living lives of radical generosity, simplicity, and community for the sake of the church. Let me give you a couple of examples of the things that we heard, and uh, they won't brag on themselves, but I can brag on them here in this context. Um, One of the things I heard was that often in the church, the history of the church over the last 30 years, when there was a need with a member or a family, 
other members or families in the church would sell their possessions, their homes, their cars, and they would give those proceeds to those in need. Radical stuff, crazy stuff. I heard several stories of young adults, single adults, who maybe graduated college and they needed a new car, so they they go to the car lot and they buy a minivan. I was like, why would you buy a minivan? And they said, well, you know, there's a lot of students coming from the campus and we want to like be able to like transport them or there are needs in the community and we want to be able to serve the community. So we bought a minivan so we could do ministry. And then another story I heard, I sat with a woman who'd been on staff for the entire 30 years and I was asking her questions about this, this kind of radical, unique church. And she was saying that um, over those 30 years, they've moved kind of all around the country, places like Austin, Texas, Minneapolis, Minnesota, to plant churches. Um, and one of the things they've sacrificed is like homes and possessions in, it, in order to be able to do that. But just a few years ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and really wanted to go back home to, to California and be with her family there. But they didn't have a home for her to kind of base out of and do treatments to do chemotherapy. So a family in the church opened their home for over a year, gave their home for over a year and stayed with them and, and served that family as she went through treatments. It's just a really powerful story. But what struck me is the commonality of that to them. It's just like, well, that's what you do. You sacrifice for the sake of the church, for the sake of the mission. And as I sat there, I was both encouraged and impassioned, like, wow, I want to do that. And then I was also convicted. Man, I don't do that. (laughs) I don't do that. And it can sound a little crazy, right? Maybe like a cult. We get a little uncomfortable with things like this. But the reality is, is it that crazy? Is it that crazy for our brothers and sisters to simply look at the scriptures, to read the scriptures, and to seek to live out what they see? I don't think it's that crazy. I don't think it's that crazy to trust God and to seek to live lives of radical generosity. So I don't know what God is going to do today, but I will say this. I think God is doing something unique in our midst. I think he is calling us to sacrifice for the sake of each other and for the kingdom. And my prayer for you right now is that you will hold out your treasures before a God who loves you. He cares for you more than you could ever know. And you be willing to give those treasured over to Jesus. You give your time and your possessions and your money and you tell Jesus whatever you want, Lord, they're yours. For the sake of of your glory and for the sake of the kingdom of God, may you use them. So that's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, who is able to rip the treasures from our heart, who is able to draw us into a more beautiful picture of the kingdom of God, one of sacrifice and significance and generosity. Spirit, I pray that you meet us in this moment, that you change us, that you mold us, that you shape us into the image of your son. Lord, may we reflect the things that you value, the things that you love, the things that you are passionate about, Lord, may we reflect your life. May we give our lives away for the sake of others and for the sake of the kingdom. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So as you might have picked up on, this is going to be a difficult sermon for all of us to hear because what Jesus is talking about in this passion is he's talking about money and possessions and how we relate to our money and possessions. And as I was meditating on this passage and I was thinking about what God wants to do, myself and my family to do and what he's calling our church to do, I started thinking about the Carls and the, the church that we're sending out, the sacrifice they're making. Um, and as I was reading this passage, I was reminded that citizens is not just the name of a church that we're sending, that citizens is an identity that you and I carry. 
that we are all citizens of a new kingdom, a better kingdom. And as I was thinking about that, th these two questions popped in my mind. I want to give those to you to set the stage of our, our message today. The question is, what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? How does it change the way we live and relate to this world? Because here's the deal, guys. If we live in a kingdom and we have a king and we're called to be citizens of that kingdom, it should radically transform the way we engage with this world. We should be different. We should reflect the things that Jesus is passionate about. And that's the question that Jesus is answering in the Sermon on the Mount. He is showing us how to live in the new kingdom. In fact, chapter six, uh, we'll see, is all about how we live in the kingdom. Pastor Jamal did a great job last week and he showed us that kingdom citizens practice their holiness in private so that God can see, not in public so that we can boast. It doesn't mean we don't do things in public. It doesn't, doesn't mean that um, we, we pass over those private things. It means we root our life in Jesus and our deep relationship with him and that we're doing things in public not to be seen. That's not the purpose. In fact, chapter six gives us at least six different ways that we live out our righteousness before God as citizens of the kingdom. And what I want to do this morning uh, is Pastor Jamal took the first four last week. You can go back and listen to that sermon. And then I'm going to hit on the last two. So Jesus' first big teaching of this passage starts in verse 19. And this is what he says. As kingdom citizens, we're called to invest our treasure in the kingdom, not in earthly things. Now, money and possessions are an uncomfortable topic. Maybe it doesn't make you uncomfortable, but it makes me uncomfortable a little bit. Um, I'm from a culture, kind of the, the rural South, from a small town in the South. And I was taught that you don't talk about three things. You don't talk about politics, you don't talk about religion, and you don't talk about money. Uh, so my whole life, we just never talked about those things. I was never around those things. So when Jamal's like, hey, I want you to teach out this passage, it's like, okay, Lord Jesus, I can do this. Because I, I knew a couple things that talking about money's hard, but I knew that dealing with my own heart and money is also difficult. But here's the deal. Jesus cares about this topic. He talks a lot about money. He talks a lot about possessions. In fact, he talks more about money and possessions than any other social issue. More than work, more than politics, more than marriage, more than status, and more than power. If this topic, the, the power of treasure, our time, our talents, our money, our possessions, if they matter to Jesus, they should matter to us as well. So if you're uncomfortable today, I want to just invite you to bring that uncomfort to Jesus and say, okay, Lord, what message do you have for me? I'm ready. And he will meet us. So Jesus tells us in verse 19 what he wants us not to do and what he wants us to do. Same concept, same teaching, but there's a positive and a negative. The first is don't store up your treasures on earth. Don't store up your treasures on earth. Now, let me be clear out of the gate. Jesus is not saying that you can't save money, that you can't be wise with money, although that can be an idol. Jesus is not saying you can't have nice stuff, although that can also be an idol. Mainly, the, the focus of what Jesus is saying is that you should not hoard wealth or find your hope in money and material things. That the kingdom of God and the life to come is much greater than what you can possess, what you can buy with money, or you can find here on earth. Now, before you mentally check out, some of you have already realized we're talking about money. This is talking about wealth. I'm not rich. This sermon isn't for me. Stay with me. This sermon is for you because the word of God speaks loud to this issue and Jesus has a challenge for each of us. To the rich, here's a word to the rich. Having money and wealth is not sinful, but it can lead to a life of sin and self-dependence. Because what money can do is it 
can pull us away from our needed dependence on Jesus. We begin to believe this falsehood that I have money, I have comfort, anything I need I can buy. Anything that comes my way, I can deal, I can deal with it with money. But that's not true. That self-dependence can lead to a sinful lifestyle. So we have to push up against that. Matthew 19, Jesus addresses this concern of, of riches and wealth. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is not saying that rich people won't be in heaven. Do not hear that. That's not what he is saying. But what he does mean is that wealth can be a barrier to feeling your need for Jesus. It can keep you from realizing that you desperately need Jesus. Guess what, guys? Set money aside. Set possessions aside. We all share a commonality. We need Jesus desperately. And as weird as it sounds, there is a blessing in poverty. The blessing in poverty is you're reminded every day, every moment that you need Jesus. We see that in the scriptures, right? We see often the poor and the broken who are running to Jesus. So it's a barrier. It's a concern. I can re still remember a conversation I had um, with a really good, a really good friend. Uh, I was helping him move and his, his dad was a very loving man, had a lot of wealth, but he loved Jesus. And he really took me under his wing. His name was Ken. Ken took me under his wing. It was like a father to me. My father left when I was young and God graciously gave me men like that. And Ken really invested in my life. And I remember we were moving him. He lived in a really, really big house and he was moving to a not so big house. He was downsizing so that he could invest in the kingdom. And I remember us driving. I remember it vividly. Um, we were stopped at a stoplight. He turns to me, looks in the eye and says, Nathan, um, being wealthy and honoring Jesus with that wealth can be a heavy burden. It's just really significant because I had grown up in relative poverty and had not really been around wealth, especially wealth uh, through someone who loved Jesus. But as I reflect back on that, that moment, that statement, that it really makes sense. What my friend Ken was saying was that God had given him wealth and that God was demanding that he steward it well. So friends, in this church today, if God has given you wealth, praise God, it is a heavy burden to carry. He's given you that to steward well for the sake of the kingdom and for the good of others. May you honor him with your treasures. But it's not just the rich, it's to the poor. Do not think this message is for you if you count yourself poor. Keep in mind who Jesus was talking to on the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about this before, but Jesus gathered people to himself and the majority of people who were sitting at his feet learning from Jesus were the poor and the broken. These are people who on a regular basis struggle to put food on the table for their family. And it's to these people that Jesus speaks about their treasures. Don't store up your treasures uh, here on earth, store them up in heaven. He was speaking to the poor. Now, I know many of you have financial realities that I can't begin to understand and maybe not relate to. Maybe you feel buried under a mountain of debt. Maybe you have generational poverty. Your grandparents and your parents were poor and you find yourself in the same cycle of going back to those rhythms of poverty. Or maybe you face racial inequality that I will never understand. Whatever is going on in your life, Jesus is able to meet you in that moment. That's an invitation to you. And Jesus' point here, he's not singling out the rich or the poor. Instead, what Jesus is doing, he's addressing the heart. It's not you rich people, you poor people, or you middle class people. I'm stepping on some toes, aren't I? I think that's what we often do, right? Is we say, well, I'm not rich and I'm not poor. So if there's a, a, a message to the wealthy, it's not us. Or if there's a message to the poor, it's not us. But the reality is we have wealth 
beyond what we could understand. Did you know that 80% of the world lives on less than $300 a day? Now, I'm not saying that to bring guilt upon you, but this is just a reality that the majority of the world live within this means of $300. So if you have more than that, you have a wealth that's in the top 20%. So think about it in a global perspective and a historical perspective. God has given us a wealth that we have to steward. But wherever you are, rich, middle class, poor, the point is that the idolatry of money and stuff is not primarily a rich, poor, middle class thing. It's a heart issue. That our sinful hearts naturally look to the treasures of this world. I don't know if that's you, but it's me. When I'm pulling away from Jesus and when I'm fighting sin, I often find myself trying to find fulfillment in stuff or savings or whatever it might be, food. You, you insert whatever is competing for your heart. But our, our hearts are pulled to that, to comfort and to security that only Jesus can provide. I love what Pastor John Piper says about money. He says, money is dangerous. If you have it and depend on it, it will kill you. If you, have it and cra- if you do not have it and crave it, it will kill you. Money will kill us because it reveals our heart. So powerful. If you've got money and you trust in it, you find your hope in it, it will rot your soul away. Or if you don't have money and you're looking to it, you're idolizing, it will also rot your soul away. It's a dangerous thing because it reveals our heart. So no matter where you put yourself on the scale, the message is the same. Jesus's command is to not treasure up stuff here on earth because things will rot, they'll rust, they'll be stolen. Instead, we're called to invest our treasures, our money, our possessions, our time in a kingdom, in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will last forever. The kingdom of God, it'll never rust, it'll never rot. No thief can come in and steal God's kingdom. When you invest your life and your resources and your treasures in God and in the things that God values, it can never be taken away from you because the kingdom of God will last forever. So that's what Jesus says, don't do with your money. Okay, don't do that. But this is what Jesus says to do. He tells you to store up your treasures in heaven into the kingdom of God. So how do we use our money, possessions, and time? How we use those things, it reveals what's most true about us, our heart, the things we're longing for, the things we're desiring. Look back in verse 21. 21 reads, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me read it one more time. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not speed over this. This is a central point of what Jesus is saying. He wants us to slow down and to think about the way we live our life. So we're going to take a mid-sermon pause. And I want us to do some self-reflection. How do your habits around money, stuff, and time reflect your heart? What do they say about how you, what you truly desire? And I want to look in three areas. We're going to look at your money, your possessions, and your time. We're about to get real. So when you talk about money, what are your spending habits? The money God has given you, do you find fulfillment and joy by going on a shopping spree? Maybe it's Amazon, maybe you go to the store, you run to Target and you buy some stuff and it fills that void in your heart only later that day or later that week or later that month, that hole reappeals and you try, to, you try to fill it with stuff, food, whatever it might be. And you use your money as a means of coping. Or what about your savings habits? Do you not save at all and you don't value investing and preparing yourself? Or maybe you oversave. And let me say, uh, I think there's such a thing as oversaving. If you remember uh, Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives this analogy 
of a rich man who has a whole barn full of, of things. He stores all this grain and wheat, and then it's so big, he, he wants to tear it down and build a bigger one. And Jesus says, you fool, this very night, this very night your life will be taken from you. And that's what it is to oversave and to overprepare and to, to pull in our wealth. Maybe you idolize investments or retirement or your finances. What are your savings habits? They reveal your heart. What about your giving habits? Do you faithfully give to the local church? Guys, here's the deal. Giving faithfully to your local church is a basic point of discipleship that Christians are supposed to give. We're supposed to give sacrificially. We give to the church. We give to those around us in need. We give to see the kingdom of God expand both domestically and overseas. And are you regularly sacrificing for others and for the mission of God? So that's money. What about possessions? Do you simply see your possessions as something that you can pull in close and that you can use for yourself? Or do you see your possessions as something that you can give to God and you can serve others with? Do you faithfully use your possessions to serve the church? Do you regularly sacrifice and give what you have to others? Thirdly is time. How do you use your time? Do you find yourself constantly saying no when people are asking things from you because it's inconvenient or because it doesn't fit your schedule? If that's you, then you need to reevaluate how you're using your time. I think those are some key areas to think about the kingdom of God and your treasures. Now, my point here is not to bury you under a mountain of guilt. I realize I'm, I'm feeling some guilt myself, some conviction. But my point is I want you to slow down and to reflect on how you use your treasures. Ask yourself, as I think about all those questions that you, I just gave you, are all of your answers self-centered? Time, stuff, money. Is it about you and your family or is it about others and about the kingdom of God? We have to turn around, do a 180 of how we view the things that God has given us. Because God has called us and all of us in this room to live radical lives of generosity, to, to give our very lives away. Let me, let me put it another way. Think about stewardship versus ownership. When it comes to money, we are stewards and not owners. So ownership says that all I have, my money, my possessions, and my time belong to me. I'm the Lord over all that I have, and I can do with my money whatever I want. It's my rights. I have rights over my possessions. But stewardship says that these things do not belong to me. All that I have belongs to another. I am simply the caretaker of the things I've been given. When I make decisions, I primarily think about how I can honor God and serve others, and then I think about my own needs. So even as you think about your paycheck, okay, you think about the money that you earn, when you primarily think about that money, is it, I'm going to take care of my needs and my family and all these things, and then I'm going to give to others and to the church? Or is it a first fruits principle? I'm going to give the things God has called me to do, and then God will provide for me for what's left over. That second thing is a stewardship principle. We are stewarding something God has given us. The difference between my rights as an owner and my responsibility to steward as a good steward. Let me give you, I want to give you three quick examples. If you will uh, look at Acts chapter two, it's going to be on the screen behind me. This is a partial description of the early church, how the early church lived out their righteousness. Verse 44, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. 
This is the first and most robust description we have of the early church. And the biggest section of this is about giving themselves away. Oftentimes we come to Acts chapter two, it's about, well, they sat into the Lord's teaching, they broke bread together. But right here in the middle, it says they shared all that they have to eliminate poverty in their church. And they did so with great joy and generosity. I think too often we want to move past this because it's, it's a little weird. It's a little, uh, a little bit like communism or Marxism, right? We want to pass by it. But there is this huge point of sacrifice and service that the church had. Let me give you another example. I think about community group. I've been a part of some really great community groups over my life at Sojourn. I'm in a great community group now. And one of the things that I've seen my community group do is sacrifice to one another. There was a, a single lady in our church who was uh, in a car accident. It was really sad, actually. It was a hit and run. Somebody hit her and the guy drove off. So she didn't have the money to fix her car. So she just had to abandon it. And she was sharing this with our community group, the pain, like how is she going to get to work? How is she going to live life? But there was a family in our church who was not wealthy by any means, who had a little savings and privately went to her and said, we'll pay for everything, $2,800. We'll, we'll fix your car. And to them, it was a normal rhythm of life. Like, of course, we're going to sacrifice for the people we do life with. And it made such an impact on me to think about what it means to truly be community. Or I've heard stories from some of you in this very room about what it means to open your homes to community group members who are struggling. Maybe they're going through a divorce, or they've lost a job, or they've lost a home, they have nowhere else to go. So you have a bedroom or maybe you have a couch and you open your home for months at a time so they have a place to live. These are the stories that you don't hear that, that, that I get to hear and others in the church get to hear. We get to see these quiet, hidden stories of sacrifice and generosity. Or I think about my own growth uh, in the gospel, my own discipleship. When I was a college student, I was about 20 years old. I was living by myself. I was living on my own. I was going to class full time. I was working two jobs to pay school. And I remember growing in discipleship. I was being mentored. And one of the principles I learned was to give 10% of my income to the local church. How important that was. Um, and I was struggling to pay my bills. Life was really tight, but I, I wanted to be committed to do that. And I did. And guess what, guys? God faithfully provided for me. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I still struggled to pay for school. I struggled to buy groceries. I didn't get to do all the things that I wanted to do in college, but I saw God show up and meet my needs. But more than that, I can vividly remember experiencing the joy of giving. I got to give away. And when I gave away, there was this urgency of like, Lord, you have to show up. You have to show up. I have to, I've got to pay for college. This is really difficult. And God used those formative moments of my discipleship to imprint on me the value of giving. I remember working all summer in college um, and not getting a lot at, by the end of the summer. I went in to pay my college bill from the last semester that I had not paid. And we weren't, I wasn't allowed to go to class until I paid that, that bill off. And I had like a third of what it was. And I went to the clerk and I said, here's what I have. I know I don't have enough. You know, I was going to try to articulate, can we work something out? And as soon as I gave it to her, she smiled and she said, Mr. Sloan, someone's paid your bill. It's taken care of. Who paid my bill? I can't tell you that. <laughs> and you know what? I don't know. I actually have no idea who paid my bill, but I do know who was behind all of that. And Jesus was. I, I sought to give to the kingdom and he met my needs. Now, it doesn't mean he met everything and gave me all that I wanted, but he met the things that I needed. He showed up when I needed him. And Jesus wraps this whole section up by making his point clear. 
You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and stuff because both of those things, God and money, demand your whole heart. Look in verse 24. Jesus talks about you can't have two masters. I think too often we think that we can have two masters, right? We, we love Jesus and we want to grow in holiness, but we feel this competition for our heart. Maybe it's God and stability, God and a relationship. Maybe it's, um, it's God and a career. It's God and comfort. Maybe it's God and cold, hard cash. I don't know what competes for your heart, but something, something is competing for your heart right now. I want you to think about that. What is competing for your heart? There is only room for one. It's Jesus or your idols. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for you will either hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and be enslaved to money. I love that translation, the power of that last phrase. You can't serve God and be enslaved to money because that's what money does, right? That's what possessions does. They enslaves us, they chains, they, it chains us. Even if we don't realize it, it's the thing that holds us down. It pulls us back. And Jesus knows this and he speaks to our heart and he says, you can't serve God with your whole heart and be a slave to anything else. Money, the latest fashion, the latest gadget, retirement stuff, power, comfort, the safety and success of our children. Nothing, nothing can compete in our heart. It's Jesus or something else. There's not enough room in your heart for Jesus and your idols. So the invitation for you and I today is Jesus wants a place there. He wants to be there fully and totally, and he will remove that idol from your heart. In verse 25, Jesus continues this challenge, this, this poking at our idols. He challenges our relationship to stuff by calling us to trust in his care. He says that as kingdom citizens, we are invited to give our worries to God and to trust in his care. And this section hits on one big idea. This, this one big idea is that if Jesus has asked us to invest in the kingdom of God, which he has, and if he has promised to provide for all of our needs, which again, he has, then we have no reason to worry. We have no reason at all to worry. Now, that doesn't mean that worry doesn't come up in our heart all the time. It doesn't mean that we struggle to pay the bills or we uh, live in poverty or whatever that might press upon you, that anxiety isn't welling up in your heart. It doesn't mean that those things aren't present. It means that Jesus is inviting you to bring your burdens to him. He's a God who receives our burdens and he invites us, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry, church. Because as you give your lives away, I will care for you. The God who calls us to generosity is the same God who is generous to us. Look in verse 33. This whole section centers around one verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The New Living Translation says it this way, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. What a beautiful promise. The God who calls us to generosity, the God who calls us to sacrifice is the same God who is generous with us. He is gracious with us. He deeply cares for you. Listen, I know the difficulty of seeking to love God and to support your family and to, to be a part of the things that God values and the, the, the stress and the pressure of that. Maybe you feel isolated, maybe you feel alone, maybe you feel cast aside, maybe God feels distant, but the truth is that God loves you and he cares for you in your need. 
He cares for you deeply. And he invites you to say, you don't have to worry. There's no reason to worry. In fact, Jesus gives us two beautiful pictures of his provision for us. Look in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? So Jesus knows uh, our, dis- our distracted hearts. Maybe he's, he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he looks around, and he's talking about wealth and giving stuff away and radical generosity, and everyone's like, I don't even know what to do with that. And he's like, okay, everybody look up. Look at the birds of the air. Do I not care for them? Do I not love them? Do I not provide for them? And then he says in verse 28, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So he tells his followers, look to the sky. If I can provide for the birds, don't I love you more? Then I do the birds. Look down and look at the lilies of the field. Look at the flowers. I can clothe them greater than Solomon. Can I clothe you more than that? And that's the beauty of Jesus' pastoral heart for us. He calls us to great sacrifice, but he gives us his generous spirit, his generous heart. And he asked that question. Do I not love you more than these? And church, he does. He does. He loves us more than the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. He loves us more than we can ever imagine or understand. We will spend all of eternity experiencing the love and care and pursuit of Jesus. And that's what it means to store up your treasures in heaven. When you give your stuff, when you give your money, when you give your life away, what you get back is Jesus and his love and his care and his pursuit. And because of this, we have no reason to worry. You can give your worry and anxiety to God because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. And he is willing to meet us in our need. Let's be reminded of Jesus' promise again in verse 32. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. God's promised his love and his care as you step in and you sacrifice to the kingdom. As you give your stuff away, you give your life away, you seek to sacrifice so that others could know him and experience in him. His response to you is he will give you himself and he will provide for your needs. Now, this does not mean that Jesus is gonna give you everything you want the flashy car, the fancy shoes, the fancy houses. That's the prosperity gospel, and that's wicked. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is saying is, I know your needs. I know your heart, and I will provide for you. So let me ask you a question that I asked you at the beginning of the sermon. I want to close with this. How does being a citizen of God's kingdom change the way you live and relate to the world? Because if these things are true, if God loves us and he calls us to sacrifice for the mission, and for the sake of the kingdom of God, and in return, he will provide for us. That should change the way we live. That should change the way our church functions and how we budget and how we relate to our neighbors. It should change everything. If we are citizens of the king, everything is different. But how is it different for you? What does it look like? Because the reality is, if you want the world, if you want the money, you want the stuff, it's yours for the taking. Go get it. But it will rot 
it will fall apart and it will disappear and you will be left empty handed. But if you want the kingdom, the kingdom is yours. It's yours for the taking. Jesus offers it to you. It's all yours. So my question for you, church, is where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? Where your treasure is says a lot about you. Says a lot about us. Friends, let us move to a life of generosity, a life of giving ourselves away, a life of investing our treasure in the kingdom that's coming. There's no greater thing to end our life and to say we gave it for the sake of the king. So I want us to reflect on that question this week. Specifically, we're going to sing a song in just a moment that is very powerful, that calls us to lay it all down. And as you come and take communion, I want you to meditate on where your treasure is and to ask Jesus, Lord, help me give it away. And this is the question I want to ask you. This is your action. What would it look like for you to invest your money, your possessions, and your time into the kingdom of God? What can you give up give away or better use to honor God and love others? And this is a real question. I want us to give something up, give it away, or honor God with stewarding our resources. What is it for you? And Jesus, every week, he reminds us of the great sacrifice and generosity he gave to us in communion. Um, Just like he gave the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, he gave us a tangible, real sacrifice. I'm holding this. It's physical. It's real. When you come up and you break the bread, as Jesus said, in order to honor his body, remember what he's done. When you come up and do that, it's a physical reminder. You're touching this and you're remembering Jesus's body was broken for us. He poured out all he had for us and for the kingdom. In the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you come and you break the bread and you dip it in the wine or juice, you are experiencing, you are remembering his sacrifice. So today, if you are a Christian, I want you to come forward, break off a piece of the bread, dip in the wine or juice, and to ask yourself, where is my treasure? Jesus, you gave us your treasure. You gave us your very life. Help me to experience and to respond to that. If you're not a Christian, I want you to grab the person beside you and say, tell me about Jesus. How can I experience the man who would call us to give away everything and he meets us in that need? And everyone in this room who's a believer in Jesus can tell you how to come to Jesus because we ourselves have experienced the love of Jesus as well. Grab a pastor and we're happy to help and talk to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, your love is extravagant. It's more than we can ever ask or imagine. Lord, we are overwhelmed that you don't just call us to sacrifice, you don't just call us to generosity, but you gave the most generous thing you ever could, which is yourself. Your body was broken, your blood was shed so that we could experience the kingdom of God here and now and the kingdom of God to come. Father, pray as we come and we take communion, that in a very tangible, real way, as we touch the bread, as we dip it in the, uh, the juice and the wine, that we can be reminded that you gave it all for us. Lord, help us to know the treasure that we cling to and help us to give it away. Father, may we experience your love in deeper and rich ways as we seek to serve you and to give ourselves away. It's in your name I pray, amen.